Nuclear Icon, Part 2. Dr. Helen Caldicott is well known for her lifelong opposition to nuclear in all its many forms, as well as her eloquence and passion, and her ability to change minds and motivate action for more than 60 years. So when you ask her what she would do today, to turn us off our current path of nuclear proliferation towards nuclear annihilation. And she tells you, Well, I'd like to go and talk to Biden, number one. Like I talked to Reagan. I would like to address a joint session of Congress and lay out all the medical details of what could happen if we have a nuclear war and global warming and get into their soul, into their gut into what they really, really love about their lives and treasure. Try and turn their priorities from evil to good. And I mean that. I can't think of any other thing that would work, Libby. Well, when a Nobel Peace Prize nominee states a not impossible goal that has a chance of turning around our nuclear situation, It's time to do more than hope. It's time to work towards her having the opportunity to turn the thinking of the world around and motivate our leaders to get us out of that impossible, deadly, radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, the conclusion of our very special two-part interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott. Last week, she told us about her one-on-one meeting with then-President Ronald Reagan and how it almost led to a total ban on nuclear weapons. This week, she shares a vision of what she would like to do in order to make a similar impact on world nuclear policy before it's too late. We'll also have Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, as well as nuclear news from around the world, and more honest nuclear information than has yet escaped from the Milky Way's newly discovered black hole. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 11, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in the U.S., where over the weekend, one of the many growing wildfires in New Mexico forced residents near the Los Alamos National Laboratory to prepare for possible evacuations. Wildfires that reached the lab increased the risk of dispersing chemical waste and radionuclides, such as plutonium, that have been deposited in the soil in the area, through the air, in the ashes, and carried away by runoff after a fire. 
Radiological waste was blatantly mishandled in the early years of the laboratory, which was built for the Manhattan Project in 1943, and now Jay Coglin, director of the environmental group Nuclear Watch New Mexico, has called for a more thorough evaluation of the lab's current fire risks and questions whether planned plutonium pit production is appropriate. A two-year extension of the Radiation Compensation Exposure Act, or RECA, has passed both the House and the Senate. It's Nuclear Hot Seat's Hot Story of the Week, and here with the details is Linda Pence-Gunter. The first ever U.S. atomic bomb detonation was the infamous Trinity test on July 16, 1945 in New Mexico. It was only decades later, though, in 1990, that the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act was passed, to compensate approved individuals with illnesses likely caused by radiation exposure from uranium mining or atomic testing. You would think that the people living in New Mexico downwind of Trinity would have been the first to be considered. Quite the contrary. Even today, New Mexicans who were downwind of Trinity are still excluded from RECA, as the act is known. RECA only applies to uranium miners, millers, and transporters, people at nuclear test sites, and people in certain counties in Utah, Nevada, and Arizona who lived downwind of the Nevada test sites. However, there was finally a bit of good news last week when the U.S. House of Representatives supported a bill passed by the U.S. Senate on May 6th to extend RECA for another two years. This was critically important because the act had been about to sunset this July, in other words, end. The extension gives those working to expand the act and get Trinity downwinders and others included more time to get that done. So it's a reprieve, but not full justice yet. As Tina Cordova of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Association points out, the extension simply maintains the status quo. What matters now is using the crucial next two years to get those affected who have never been compensated included. That includes Cordova's own family, many of whom have suffered negative health effects as a result of the Trinity legacy, including Tina herself. But Cordova, a passionate advocate whom you have heard on this program, has been campaigning for recognition and compensation for years, not only for her own family, but for countless fellow New Mexicans. Hope is on the horizon. A bipartisan bill offered by New Mexico Democrat Senator Ben Ray Lujan and Republican Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho, who also has uncompensated downwinders in his state, would rectify those glaring omissions. Their bill would expand compensation under RECA to downwinders in Colorado, Idaho, Montana, New Mexico, and the territory of Guam. Their bill was introduced last September. Representative Teresa Leger Fernandez, a New Mexico Democrat, introduced similar legislation in the US House of Representatives. Sadly, many of those who should have been compensated have already died. As Lujan said when introducing his bill, this is about justice and doing what's right, and there's no time to waste. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for the Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story. In Massachusetts, trespassing charges have been dismissed against Cape Downwinder's Diane Turco. 
This stemmed from a 2018 interview with NPR reporters at Entergy's Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It highlighted the inadequate security at Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, where tons of high-level nuclear waste present an existential threat to the entire region. Now Holtec, the company decommissioning Pilgrim, which closed in 2019, has agreed to temporarily pause plans to dump radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. While this sounds good, Turco fears that Holtec will essentially take the contaminated water at the plant hostage and keep it there until the decommissioning fund runs out and then leave. There's a petition on this, and we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under episode number 569. Accidents during decommissioning at New Jersey's Oyster Creek power plant have spurred calls for stricter oversight of the burgeoning nuclear decommissioning industry. As for currently operating nukes, at St. Lucie in Florida, a poorly supervised technician performing online maintenance accidentally shorted out a fuse and reduced feed water flow, creating a manual scram. And an automatic scram happened at Peach Bottom 2 in Pennsylvania after multiple electrical problems caused the main feed water to be lost. In Japan, opposition continues to mount to the planned release of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific. Tokyo Electric Power Company is moving ahead with plans to dump more than a million tons of tritium-contaminating, meaning radioactive water, and even without government permission, has begun construction work on the systems needed to discharge the water. Approval needs to be granted by Fukushima Prefecture and the towns of Okuma and Futaba. The planned radioactive water dump is opposed by the Don't Pollute the Sea Anymore Citizens Council of local residents, the local fishing industry and collectives, as well as the countries of South Korea and China. In 2016, Tokyo Electric Power Company completed an underground ice wall around Fukushima Daiichi to divert the groundwater towards the ocean and away from the damaged reactor buildings where the liquid can become heavily contaminated with radioactive substances. Not only has it failed to work sufficiently, but huge amounts of public funds also continue to pour in annually for its maintenance. So much for the slushy. In the UK, drones have been seized by security personnel at nuclear facilities, with one report of a swarm at a UK installation. There were 20 such reports between 2020 and 2021, and in two instances the drones landed in the area and were secured by personnel. At the Sellafield nuclear site in Cumbria, 245 miles or 396 kilometers from London, eight representatives from the Norwegian environmental group Neptune Network have protested to demand a halt to the reception of more nuclear waste at the plant. They said an accident with radioactive release into the air could have serious consequences for Norway and cited a lack of maintenance, little transparency, several accidents and near misses at the site. And in Ukraine, the lead singer of the popular Ukrainian band Okin Elzy staged a solo performance for workers at the Chernobyl nuclear power station on Friday, May 13. Sviatoslav Vikarchuk said, Everybody knows the horrors of Chernobyl in 1986. These people here are working to make sure this tragedy will never happen again. Not in Ukraine, not in other countries. We'll have this week's very special featured interview in just a moment. But first... The nuclear industry never lets up with their propaganda, using talking points, op-eds, talk show bookers, and other tactics to brainwash our politicians, reporters, and the public into giving them whatever they want, 
which is at base money, money, money. And let's face it, they have all the money in the world to fund their PR agencies and their agenda. It's a business model with a terrific return on investment, because for whatever millions the nukesters spend on their public relations propaganda, they stand to get billions back in taxpayer bailouts. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. For almost 11 years, Nuclear Hot Seat has been one of the only places in the world where you can get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. Interviews with genuine experts, a roundup of international news, numbnuts, bad puns, a touch of musical theater on occasion. Where else can you find a package like this in a weekly counterbalance to the nuclear industry lies? But up against the nuclear industry's unlimited financial resources, this show operates on a bake sale budget. And that budget is dependent on you, the listeners, to help keep us going. That's why, if you have come to value Nuclear Hot Seat's work, the time to support us with a donation would be right now. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a red Donate button for you to click on. And that's where you can send a donation of any size or set up a recurring donation of as little as $5 a month. Same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So help us by going right now to NuclearHotSeat.com. Click on the button and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's very special featured interview. Dr. Helen Caldicott is an anti-nuclear icon, an Australian physician, author, and in many ways the godmother of the anti-nuclear movement and all activism within it. She revived or founded Physicians for Social Responsibility, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and other groups dedicated to opposing the use of nuclear power, depleted uranium munitions, nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons proliferation, and military action in general. Nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Nobel winner Linus Pauling, for more than six decades, Dr. Caldicott has led the fight and inspired legions of others to join her in the work to end nuclear in all its many forms. I am one of those recruits, and without her, Nuclear Hot Seat would not exist. I talked with Dr. Caldicott from her home in Australia for well over an hour, which is why the interview has been split into two parts. Part one was presented last week on Nuclear Hot Seat number 568, and here is the conclusion. I spoke with Dr. Helen Caldicott on Monday, April 25th, 2022. You have this history of being a phenomenally successful in terms of disability starting groups. You started another group, the for Women's nuclear. Action for Nuclear Disarmament. I actually called it Women's party for survival and people said you can't start another party in this country we've only got two but I should have stuck to it because it would have been very very powerful so we called it women's action for nuclear disarmament wand and that's been very powerful too does the group still exist yes and they've got a group that lobbies in congress they've got quite a lot of congress women belonging to it it's not as effective and powerful as it could be, or I wanted it to be. And unfortunately, I've left the States now, so it's not doing the work I wanted it to do. And when the Cold War ended, they changed the name to Women's Action for New Directions instead of Women's Action 
for nuclear disarmament. And I said, don't do that, don't do that. But now here, look at us now. After all the work we did and nearly getting to abolition of nuclear weapons between Russia and America, we're on the verge of extinction now. And someone said, what do you want on your tombstone? She tried and she failed. It's the truth. And in fact, Gorbachev's just been interviewed and they said, what do you want on your tombstone? He want, I tried. But he wouldn't but, admit the other part of it. Apparently not. Just really pisses me off, I have to tell you. Really, I mean, I just look out my window at my roses and the rosellas and uh, how could we destroy it? Just, and, and these bloody men who are military-industrial complex who are stealing trillions of money from the American people, calling it defence. They've got factories in every congressional district. So if anyone think any vote comes up for weapons, everyone votes for it because it's jobs. Jobs for killing. Jobs for murder. And no one calls it by its proper name. No one does. And then... Putin is doing dreadful things to Ukraine, but America's done dreadful things since 9-11. It's killed nearly a million people, according to Brown University research. And it's got 800 bases in 80 countries. I mean, who does America think she is? She's metastasized like a cancer all over the world and killing people, killing. Think of all the children starving in Yemen. Think of this man who's just bought Twitter. He could feed all the children of the world. It just takes my breath away. And 52% of the population are women. That's us. And we're full of nurturing hormones, not testosterone. And yet we have no place. 52% of the Congress should be composed of women and every other corporation in the world. Why do we stand back? Why are we so pathetic? Remember Lesestrata, the... Uh, Greek play. Yes, they where do. Fighting and killing and the fighting and killing and the women said no sex. In fact, there's a country in Africa where that happened. And guess what? The men stopped fighting and killing because sex seems to be more important to them than killing each other and us. There was another very interesting Libby experiment. There's a woman in, uh, I think, Los Angeles or San Francisco who was measuring hormones a scientist, and she noticed when there was an altercation in the lab, the men would go into their room and slam the door and sort of fume. And the next morning, the women would come in, clean the benches, make coffee, try and make everything. So she did the hormone levels. The men's testosterone went sky high. In the event of this fight, altercation, women's oxytocin went up. Now, when you have a baby and you breastfeed, oxytocin is a hormone that is nurturing. I felt when I breastfed my babies, I could feed the whole world. I used to have dinner parties and fall asleep in the soup because <laughs> I was so tired. And if you inject by aerosol oxytocin in men's nostrils, they become more nurturing and loving and caring. That's the hormone for survival. In 2008, you founded the Helen Caldecott Foundation for a Nuclear-Free Future. What was the thinking behind that, and what were you hoping to accomplish with it? All I did was give Linda and Paul Gunter 
my 501c3 because I already had an organization, a 501c3, and I, I'd almost finished. I'd held symposia at the New York Academy of Medicine on uh, Fukushima, on the threat of nuclear war. Two books came out of that, Sleepwalking to Armageddon and Crisis Without End. It was about Fukushima. So I held these symposia and it was the Helen Caldecott Foundation for a Nuclear Free Future or something like that. The Helen Caldecott Foundation for a Nuclear Free Future. Oh, okay. And so when I'd finished the work I had to do about nuclear power and Fukushima and Chernobyl and threat of nuclear war, I came back to Australia and I gave my 501c3 to Linda and Paul, who've been absolutely magnificent. Paul met me first when we marched in New Hampshire to the site where they were to build Seabrook. And I had a loudspeaker and I stood on the mound where they were to build Seabrook and spoke about the medical dangers of plutonium. And that turned Paul on and he's been on it ever since. When you learned about Chernobyl, what was your response and what actions did you take in terms of the media speaking out, raising awareness about the dangers that it represented? Now, what date did Chernobyl occur? Can you remember? Yeah, that was uh, April 26th, 1986. Towards the end of that decade, my husband left me on my 50th birthday and I lost all sense of reality and I was out of it for two years. Now, when Chernobyl occurred, I'm trying to think. I can't remember my reaction to Chernobyl, but Alexei Yablokov, who wrote The Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, Chernobyl, absolutely fantastic book. He's, it's signed by him. He's dead now. It says, Dear and Wonderful Helen, with admiration and the best wishes. <laughs> In the end... It was estimated at the time it was published, which is years ago, that one million people had already died from Chernobyl in Europe. 40% of Europe is radioactive and will continue to be for the rest of time. I don't buy European food. Turkey got such a fallout, it sent all its radioactive tea to Moscow. It was so angry, but Turkey's still very radioactive. Do not buy any Turkish food. I don't think I held a symposium on Chernobyl per se. You did hold, through the Helen Caldecott Foundation, two symposia. This was after Fukushima. The first one was in 2012, and it was the Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Impacts of the Fukushima Nuclear Accident. This was a massive two-day undertaking with international experts brought in. Yeah. What motivated you to do it, and what did it take for you to pull this together? Well, it was imperative that we put together the data on Fukushima and extrapolated into the future about what it would mean, could mean, and did mean, and to advertise the consequences so people knew about it. It didn't get as much publicity as I had wanted, but certainly it was very powerful, and the book came out of it called Crisis Without End, which has been used a lot by people. You know, Hillary Clinton signed a deal just after Fukushima saying that she would not prevent any food coming in from Japan, that that would be all fine. 
the Fukushima prefecture became very radioactive, so they dilute radioactive rice with non-radioactive rice and sell it abroad. I've just been on television in South Korea because they're terrified because the Japanese want to empty 1.4 million tonnes of radioactive water into the Pacific. And so I've been talking about how those radioactive elements bioconcentrate by orders of magnitude in each step of the food chain from crustaceans, big fish, from algae, crustaceans, big fish, little fish, us, how all of the isotopes are invisible, tasteless and odorless, how it takes up to 50 years to develop cancer once you've inhaled or ingested any of these isotopes as they irradiate a small volume of cells for many years, inducing mutations in regulatory genes and then a cancer develops, which is an unregulated cellular growth. It's just ongoing. And the Pacific's a big ocean, and I live on the Pacific here in Australia. So I could eat a fish here, you know, although I'm nearly 84, it won't affect me now, but that has been contaminated from Fukushima. The tuna in, in California are carrying isotopes from Fukushima. It's an absolute total disaster. It's never-ending, three reactors melted down they will never decommission it it's so radioactive none of the workers can get near the uh, melted fuel it will never be fixed ever ever so i thought it was terribly important that everyone learned about fukushima and we put together the data in a book that could be referenced for the rest of time that's crisis without end yes We will, of course, link to all of your publications on the website page for this under Nuclear Hot Seat. You're saying that the mainstream media did not pay attention to what you were doing with the symposium or the information you were putting out? No, no, not not interested. No. You know, this is a medical issue. It's a medical issue. If there was one case of rabies in New York, it would be headlines in the New York Times. You also produced a second symposium. This was in 2015, which was the dynamics of possible nuclear extinction. This was a seminar where, for the first time, I learned about nuclear winter, along with many other things. Oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> yes. My, my educational cur- curve has been steep since Fukushima. <laughs> And people asked me when I came back from the symposium, they said, did you have a good time? And I said, well, I came back sick, depressed and nauseous because the information was so clear and so impactful and so overwhelming in terms of spelling out the fact that we did and do face possible nuclear extinction. Explain, if you would, briefly, nuclear winter and what it is, and what could trigger it. Well, first of all, I'll tell you why I held a symposium. Who was the physicist who had ALS and was totally paralysed but brilliant? Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking said soon before that symposium that they're going to use artificial intelligence. They're using it now in the Pentagon with their weapons, nuclear weapons, etc. And he said that it's almost certain we'll have a nuclear war within 10 years. And I thought, my God, I started by 
artificial intelligence with no human input. So that's why I held the symposium. Now, nuclear winter. America's got about 3,000 hydrogen bombs. Russia's got about 3,000. China's got 250. India and Pakistan have got some. France has got some. Britain's got some. But Russia and America are the main ones. Many of the hydrogen bombs are on missiles in America and Russia, and they're on hair trigger alert, meaning there's a base in Australia called Pine Gap, which looks at the sky the whole time. And if it detects missiles coming from Russia, which take half an hour to go from where to go, then the Pine Gap alerts the Pentagon. And within that half an hour, the weapons are launched in America and they got to take half an hour to go to Russia. And the president has a three-minute decision time whether or not to launch. There are two men in each missile silo. There are about 400 silos, I think, in, mid, in the Midwest, um, each armed with a pistol, one to shoot the other if one shows signs of deviant behaviour. They operate by floppy disks. Their telephones sometimes don't work. They take drugs down there or even when they're on leave and come back to work. And they're aged like about 23 or thereabouts, and they're the ones who press the button and off the weapons go. The president, always walking beside him, is an officer with a suitcase called the football with the mechanism to initiate a nuclear war. When Reagan was shot, they lost the suitcase. <laughs> So things are very, very tenuous, and they have three minutes to decide whether or not to launch. And the nuclear was almost taken place many times by a flock of geese, misunderstood by the radars or a rising moon, or America launched a weather satellite in Norway that informed the Kremlin, but the Kremlin lost the data. They saw this satellite going up. They thought for sure that's going to be a first strike on Moscow and knock out Putin, and they got ready to launch until they just, at the last minute, found out it was a weather satellite. That sort of thing goes on all the time, all the time. We're on the edge of annihilation every minute of every day, but it's much worse now. Now, there were about 12 hydrogen bombs targeted on New York City on each of the bridges, a couple on each airport, I mean, the major centres, each had a bomb targeted on. The targeting strategy was done by a lower-level officer in the Pentagon. It was like pinning the tail on the donkey for Russia. Now, so all the major cities in Russia are targeted. All the major cities, universities and the like are targeted in America. And we'll just take those two countries. So as a bomb drops on New York, or high in the air, the temperature inside the bomb is, I don't know, can't remember, but it's 20 to 100 times greater than the temperature inside the sun. It causes a firestorm of 3,000 square miles. And when the Pentagon estimated the dangers and the results of a nuclear war, they never took into account fire, only blast, but it's fire that really does it. And the temperatures are so hot that human beings are vaporised. If you're 200 miles away and look at the flash, you'll be instantly blinded by retinal burns. Eyeballs melt and fall out of you on your face. 
concrete and steel are vaporized. And then the firestorms would unite across the country, burn east to west coast, north to south. And in every city, there's a huge stockpile of carboniferous material like oil and coal and huge amounts of stuff to burn. And as this huge cloud of toxic black radioactive smoke rises up into the stratosphere, it stays there for up to 10 years, blocking out the sun and causing temperatures to fall to below zero. And it's called nuclear winter, an ice age. Everything, everyone and every plant would die. That's nuclear winter. Actually, a symposium was held way back in the 80s with Carl Sagan et al. Nuclear winter was first explored at that time. And my editor at WW Norton, Mary Canane, produced a book from that called The Cold in the Dark. And we've known about nuclear winter for a long time. How many nuclear bombs going off would it take to trigger nuclear winter, approximately? It's not very many. I can't remember the exact number, but it's about, I hope I don't get it wrong, about 200. Simulation targeting 100 Hiroshima-sized weapons on 50 targets. For instance, a Trident submarine has 96 nuclear weapons on it, 96. And there are 16 Trident submarines, each more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. Each Trident submarine can produce the equivalent of about 1,000 Hiroshimas. Or the United States has 14 Trident submarines, and that's only half the arsenal because the rest are on land. The Russians have as many nuclear weapons. We did a simulation of what would happen if the US and Russia had a nuclear war. A lot more smoke would go into the atmosphere. It would cause a much greater temperature change of seven to eight degrees Celsius colder. The person who's written about this is Ira Helfand, who helped me found PSR. So here we are with the situation in Ukraine. Suddenly, it is Russia invading Ukraine, the United States, all of the EU, NATO are getting involved with this. There's a lot of nuclear saber rattling, but there's also the nuclear dangers on the ground from Russia's invasion. You've said several times during this interview that we are on the edge of annihilation. Talk to us about the situation as you see it in Russia now. Yes, um, there are 15 nuclear reactors in the Ukraine, including Chernobyl. If the Second World War was fought today in Europe, Europe would be uninhabitable for the rest of time because it would be so radioactive, uninhabitable. The Russian soldiers, over a thousand of them, camped by Chernobyl, digging trenches, burning the wood for fires, extremely radioactive. And almost all those soldiers now are suffering from acute radiation illness. They've had so much radiation that kills their blood cells, so they can't stop bleeding. They develop hemorrhages, vomiting, diarrhea, and infection because the white blood cells die too, and they'll die within a few weeks of acute radiation illness. Then they went to another nuclear power plant, and I can't pronounce the name, but it begins with Z. Zaporizhia. And they hurled missiles into that reactor. It's unbelievable what they've been doing through sheer ignorance. Luckily, the power supply was still intact. 
but there could have been a meltdown there. There are 15 reactors. You can't have a war where there are nuclear reactors and missiles and like, but that's what's happening in the Ukraine. So it could cause Europe to become uninhabitable, millions dying of acute radiation illness, millions getting cancer later. I mean, Chernobyl on a massive scale. That's number one. Number two, Putin has put his nuclear weapons on a higher alert than normal. Number three, America's arming the Ukraine and Poland, etc., with weapons. Number four, Putin asked, begged America not to allow the Ukraine to join NATO and to remove all the weapons that America's placed in the new NATO countries, all bordering Russia. And it's been great for the military-industrial complex because they organised this through Lockheed Martin, etc., to weaponize all these newly liberated countries. It's as if what the Warsaw Pact has come into Canada and produced weapons all along the northern border of America. What would America do? Blow up the world like it nearly did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He begged them to remove the weapons and not to enlarge NATO. They said no. Obviously, America's been wanting to have a, a war with, with Putin. I'm sure that American nuclear weapons are on a higher state of alert. And as I've already described to you, how a nuclear war could start and it could easily be a mistake, like Pine Gap picking up something that they think is an attack from Russia. There's a three-minute decision time whether to launch or not. America's been extremely provocative. You know, and as I've said, America has killed a million people since 9-11. What Putin's doing is obscene, killing people. I mean, why are we so murderous? What is it all about? And it's the old way of thinking. It's what Einstein said. The splitting of the atom changed everything, save man's, and I stress man, man's mode of thinking. Thus we drift towards unparalleled catastrophe. I look out my window in, in the morning and look at the roses and the birds and I think, how much longer will that exist? I've got seven grandchildren and I think in my lifetime, it's all going to happen. I don't think about it an awful lot. I'm obsessed with cooking and my garden and things of beauty. I've just had my whole family with me for a whole two weeks. My son from Boston. It's beyond imagination. And I tried so bloody hard, you know, and it nearly worked. It nearly worked. And these bloody bastards, the weapons manufacturers, they're going to, in a couple of years, spend $2 trillion on weapons, on murder. It's all murder. It's murder. And there are millions of children starving, you know, and there's global warming, which is... I mean, nuclear winter will fix global warming. That's one good aspect of it. I'm being facetious. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm beyond words. I, it's just too bloody awful. And the shares in Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and all these horrible bloody weapons companies have gone up sky high since this war started. It's just what they want, money. They are evil. They are war criminals. I don't, won't say, well, it should happen to them. But if I was president, I'd close down the whole, all of these companies and I'd use the money to save the planet. Would that you were in the position to be able to pull that off. 
I'd be a good president. I'll tell you why. If we have a patient who's very difficult and we can't really work out what the treatment is and the diagnosis, I would bring in the neurologist, the nephrologist, the cardiologist, and sit around a table with the specialist in every area and work out what best regime for the patient would be. That's what I'd do if I was president. Because the planet is in the intensive care unit. And, you know, you can have a patient in the intensive care unit and everything's balanced, the electrolytes, the cardiac function, the liver function, and the patient might get just a little pimple or a boil and that will destabilise the whole situation and the patient will die. Well, we're in that position now with global warming and the threat of nuclear war. We're in that position. The planet's in the intensive care unit. And most politicians don't understand. They are corporate prostitutes, bought and sold. Corporate prostitutes have sold their souls like Faust. After Three Mile Island, there was massive activism. There were demonstrations where 100,000 people showed up. And yet today, even though we've got social media, we can communicate so many different things. There does not seem to be a comparable movement or comparable action to move us away from nuclear. There's no common voice that's out there. Why do you think that is? Well, I think when the Cold War ended, everyone heaved a sigh of relief and they talked about peace dividends, etc., which never happened. And Norman Augustine, who was the head of Lockheed Martin, went to all these newly liberated countries and said, do you want to be a democracy? And, of course, they said yes. And do you want to join NATO? Yes, they said. To join NATO, they had to spend millions and billions of dollars on buying weapons. So it was Norman Augustine and the military corporations who enlarged NATO all along the border of Russia. You see, I was a constant presence on television and radio and in the magazines because of Pat Kingsley, my agent in Hollywood. There's no one who can gain access to the media like that. And the media is determining the fate of the earth. And it's pretty well controlled by a fellow countryman of mine called Murdoch, who's one of the most evil men in the world. And the media is full of absolute crap. But it's not teaching people what is actually happening to the planet. An informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. People are ignorant. They're walking like lemmings towards the cliff of annihilation. And we desperately need people to teach us what's going on. The people in Congress, I love Bernie Sanders, but he only goes so far. There's no one else to stand up. I'd love to address a joint session of Congress because I used to be able to, I'd give lectures and everyone would end up in tears and they would all be motivated. And that's how we got a million people in Central Park and 80% of Americans wanting the end to the arms race. That's not happening now, Libby. People don't know. They're in ignorance, walking towards the cliff, sleepwalking to Armageddon. All of us. Do you think there is any way to turn this around? And if so, what might that be? Well, a man just immolated himself outside the Congress, I think, today. And he's a climatologist 
terribly concerned about global warming. You did that to focus attention, but that won't work. What do I think would work? Well, I'd like to go and talk to Biden, number one, like I talked to Reagan. I would like to address a joint session of Congress and lay out all the medical details of what could happen if we have a nuclear war and global warming and get into their souls, into their gut, into what they really, really love about their lives and treasure. Try and turn their priorities from evil to good. And I mean that. I can't think of any other thing that would work, Libby. Some kind of coordinated uprising of voices. But how can you do that? Most peace groups are on the decline. PSR's not having an impact at all. Nobody's having any impact. You've got to go through the media. The media is determining the fate of the earth. What Marshall McLuhan said, the media is the message. And once again, you come back to Jefferson. People don't know. They do not know. Science has become so complicated now, but you need someone like me, a scientist, to boil it down to common human language so ordinary people can understand what's happening. And that's easy enough because as a doctor, you do that with a patient. And all the world's people are our patients. And we need to educate them. I don't know. I could burn myself, but that wouldn't make any difference. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a weenie roast I would want to go to. (laughs) So if we could arrange for you to speak directly with Bernie Sanders and perhaps use... No, I don't think it's Bernie. Bernie's good. But it's Biden that really needs to be talked to. Biden and Kamala together. So if we could arrange that. Talking to McConnell. I'd just nail him to the wall and talk about his testicles. (laughs) I'd really, you know, I I could probably get through to him because I've stopped quite a few people smoking and that's a very hard task to do that. And they've hated me for years and then they've thanked me. It's really practicing medicine, the art of medicine. So we need to have a goal of getting you in front of Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Mitch McConnell, and Congress. Yeah. I'd like to do Biden and Harris alone, alone, with none of their advisors, and I'd like to do McConnell alone. Let's (laughs) Let's see what can be done to make that happen. Maybe I'll just hang a stethoscope around my neck when I meet them. White coat, too. That would also be... Definite white coat. Yeah, Costuming. Remember, this is for the media and you make the visual impression first. I used to say, if you wear pearls, you can say anything. And, you know, if you're really beautifully dressed, and I always was, people say, oh, that's interesting. Whereas if you look like a hippie, they don't take any notice of you. You've got to look really classy. Well, dressed like a doctor, yeah. Well, let's see if we can get you in a position where you can still doctor to a very sick mindset in a nation that definitely needs to hear what you have to say in all of its... Yeah, I'd love to do a joint session of Congress, boy. Let's see what we can get going.
It, <laughs> You're as mad as I am. Yes, I am. How else would I be doing 11 years of this show every week? Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about. At one point for a four-year period of time, you were doing a radio program, If You Love This Planet. Yeah. What were the topics that you covered? Was it exclusively nuclear? Was it more than that? And where are those tapes now? How can they be accessed? I think if you go to my webpage, HelenCaldicott.com, you might be able to find them there. If not, get in touch with me and I know who to send you to to find them. I interviewed so many people. I interviewed a Russian climatologist on global warming and we were talking about permafrost and methane and I finally asked him a question about what would happen if the permafrost melts and the methane is extruded into the air and he absolutely couldn't answer he almost had an epileptic fit and I said look I'm a doctor we have to extrapolate into the future about the prognosis of our patients I really want you to extrapolate about what would happen and it's actually doing it now and he just almost couldn't talk because he said it would be that would be a certainty for global warming if the permafrost melts and it's melting and releasing huge amounts of methane which is 80 times more potent as a global warmer in the first few years than co2 i mean we're in a terrible situation i interviewed people from all walks of life um and it was absolutely fascinating and in fact a book was published about it and that book is on my website too the new press published a book about all the interviews because they thought they were so good because i was able to draw people out it was fascinating we will link to whatever resources we can find because i actually have dealt recently with newer activists who were not aware of you or aware of the body of your work, or the fact that you've been doing it for, what is it now, six decades? Both so. I haven't counted. I did a little bit of math on it. And you are an ultimate resource for anyone who wants to know the unvarnished truth. You make sense of that which makes no sense so that we can possibly make the change. Do you think that we actually have time to do so? No, unless unless I can address a joint session of Congress, I can meet with Biden and Harris and McConnell. And I would just establish a doctor-patient relationship with them because this is about medicine. It's about preventive medicine. It's all about preventive medicine. I've spent my life trying to save lives in medicine, and this is the ultimate form of preventive medicine. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to say at this time? No, I accept that I would honour you, who you're highly intelligent and you got a hell of a fright and learned everything because of the fright, and you've become very powerful. Thank you so much for that. It really means a lot. And going back to the original question, is there anything, a thought, you would like to leave us with that we haven't managed to get to yet? I want everyone to realize that it's an absolute privilege to have been 
conceived out of the millions of sperm dad created that day or night that reached my egg, I came out of it. It's an absolute privilege to be born. And with that privilege and wonder, we have an, a ginormous responsibility to be highly intelligent and psychologically supremely wise. I have thought from time to time that we are an evolutionary aberrant. And I once asked Carl Sagan, did he think there was other life in the universe? And he paused for a long time and he said, no. And I said, why? He said, because if any other life had reached our stage of evolution, they would have destroyed themselves. That's where we're at. I'd like everyone to just ponder deeply about what they really, really love about their lives and how much do they really love their children. And I had a man who came up to me after a lecture and he said, I've got prostate cancer. He said, I had my first dose of estrogen the other day and I wanted to go shopping. And for the first time in my life, and I went and smelt a rose. It's so, those primitive emotions which are what life is really about. Thank you for a brilliant, wide-ranging, and deeply moving interview. Dr. Helen Caldicott. I'll have links up to her website, HelenCaldicott.com, on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 569. Be sure to check out her many books on all aspects of nuclear weapons, reactors, and the medical impact of the entire nuclear fuel chain. Now, you heard her. We know what she wants. So who out there can help us get her to speak to President Biden, Vice President Harris, and or Senator Mitch McConnell and a joint session of Congress? It's a vision. It's an intention. It could make all the difference in the world to the world. So, hey, let's give it a shot. Who knows what the results will be? All suggestions for action send to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you've got an idea for a hashtag for this campaign, let me know that as well. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Lots of viewing options for the anti-nuclear-minded. Last Sunday, May 15th, John Oliver on Last Week Tonight did a piece on America's electric utilities where he specifically called out the boondoggle at VC Summer, the two nuclear plants that never got built but still cost billions, and Pacific Gas and Electric here in California. Anand Patwajan's War and Peace, a full-length documentary on India's nuclear test in 1998, as well as the nationalistic rhetoric that accompanies these tests and the ill effects of the Indian test on the surrounding population, is now available, as is Nukes in Space, a 1995 documentary on a 1995 documentary. And, of course, the International Uranium Film Festival starts this week on Thursday, May 19. It runs through May 29th, and more than 40 films are available online for free. We will link to all of these films on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 569. And here's the tweet of the week. 
Nobel Prize nominee Dr. Helen Caldicott spoke with Reagan and almost got nuclear weapons banned. Now she wants to talk with Biden, Harris, McConnell, Congress. It's only the future that's at stake, RT, meaning retweet, until we find someone to make that happen. We'll have a copy-and-paste version available with our weekly email notification. You can sign up for it at NuclearHotSeat.com and look for the yellow opt-in box or copy it from our website. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 19, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-News.net, DeUnRenard.WordPress.com, BeyondNuclear.org, Nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, This Week Tonight with John Oliver, Dianuke.org, KUNM.org, Axios.com, SaveOurBayMA.com, CapeDownwinders.org, CapeCodTimes.com, Dr. Paul Dorfman and Edwin Lyman on Twitter, Yahoo.com, TheBulletin.org, China.org.cn, Tokyo-NP.co.jp, Asahi.com, Newsdig.tbs.co.jp, NHK.or.jp, KyotoNews.net, Local12.com, NBMediaCoop.org, TimDearJones, Metro.co.uk, NWEmail.co.uk, TheGuardian.com, TheConversation.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our ongoing thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, you can sign up on your favorite podcast channel or go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, put in your first name, your email address. We will send it to you every week. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our brand new website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and look for the red button. Anything you can do will help, and we really appreciate the support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. You can quote or cite me or my guests as long as you credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations. This is Libby Halevi, producer host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over because once it starts, it is never over. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.